John chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 22 to 30 this morning. Uh, Pastor Dale already read it earlier, but I will read it again. Gospel of John chapter 10 verse 22 through 30. At that time, the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hands to do what your word has revealed to us. In Jesus' name, amen. As many of you know, our family does foster and adoption. And some years ago, we had a foster child in our house for several years. And I will never forget the time in which he was looking at our family pictures on the wall. And at this point, he hadn't been in our home very long. And so we didn't have any pictures with him in our family. And this poor, dear child was looking for himself amidst the pictures. And he found a child who was one of my nephews who somewhat looked like him when he was young and he said, that's me. It was difficult to have to explain to this child that that was not him. But he was a vivid example of how this child living in a fallen, broken world, wanted the safety and security of a family. He longed to know that he belonged and was part of our family. You see, that's a normal desire of the human heart. Children ought to grow up with a sense of security, that they're part of the family, that they're not going to be kicked out of the family, that, that, that they are loved and cared for. And in fact, I would dare say that that is a necessary component for them to be able to develop and grow and flourish in this world. The Lord Christ this morning teaches us that His sheep indeed are safe in His flock. 
And this should be for the growth and development and maturity of the sheep. Now we're in the this section in the Gospel of John in which Jesus has been teaching at the Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, He's made some amazing statements at this feast. And then in chapter 9, He healed the blind man. And then now in chapter 10, He gives this what's sometimes called the Good Shepherd Discourse in which He's, he's giving instruction. He's talking about Himself as the Good Shepherd. And He's warning about thieves and robbers who are the, the Pharisees of the previous chapter. But then in verse 22, it's, it's interesting. Jesus is now at another feast. And this was uh, probably a couple months after his time at the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, we don't know what Jesus did during those couple months, but that doesn't uh, deter many commentators from speculating what he did or didn't do during those two months. Uh, but it's probably a fairly safe assumption that he may have stayed in the area and came back to the temple area during this feast. So let's, let's pick it up in verse 22. At that time... The Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. So here's a time indicator that John gives for us. Now, it might be one of those details that we're tempted to quickly gloss over. Because after all, you've never been invited to a Feast of Dedication that you know of. You don't even know what a Feast of Dedication is. But it's when we study the Gospel of John, it's often the feast are, are very important to what follows in the, the overall context of what John is trying to teach. Uh, for example, in chapter 6, when Jesus, uh, it's, John tells us at the beginning of chapter 6, that the time of the Passover was near, and that's in the midst of Jesus giving this bread of life discourse where he speaks of himself as the manna out of heaven, where he, towards the end of the chapter, he's talking about eating my flesh and drinking my blood, which to our minds doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But if you every year celebrated a holiday in which you ate of this sacrifice, this Passover lamb, it would make more sense. We also saw that in chapters 7 and 8 where Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles and uh, the last day, the great day of the feast where there was this great water libation ceremony, Jesus cries out in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come unto me and drink. So the feast was very significant in helping us to understand Jesus' statement, namely saying, I am the fulfillment of this feast. I am the one who who quenches your spiritual thirst. Also, uh, Shortly after that, there was on the uh, towards the end of that Feast of Tabernacles, there was a great lighting ceremony, and this was to commemorate God guiding the people of Israel through a fire by night and a cloud by day. And it's in that context in John eight twelve where Jesus says, "What I am the light of the world," and so those should be clues that there might be something significant about the Feast of Dedication and what Jesus is teaching on in this section. So, the question then is, what is the significance of it? What is the Feast of Dedication? Well, you probably are more familiar with another title of the Feast of Dedication, namely Hanukkah. Okay, So, Jesus is here celebrating Hanukkah. 
You say, what? What is Hanukkah? I just, you know, growing up, I just kind of always thought that's the Jewish counterpart to, you know, Christian celebration of Christmas. You know, they have their Hanukkah, we have our Christmas. Well, Hanukkah was a feast that was not commanded by God in the Old Testament, which, by the way, that's my theological justification for celebrating Christmas. It is a man-invented holiday. God didn't give any specific commands, so that's... That's, uh, you know, to give a nod to all you bah humbug, Puritan, crusty Christians who don't celebrate Christmas. The Feast of Dedication, Jesus celebrated. It wasn't commanded in the Old Testament Scriptures. But it was, it was a celebration of the anniversary of the dedication of the... Te- or I should say the rededication of the temple. Uh, maybe you remember way back to our studies in the book of Daniel some years ago when uh, there was a time that Daniel prophesied of during the time of the Maccabees where there was a guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes uh, who, who basically declared himself to be God. He was part of the Seleucid dynasty which was kind of an offshoot of the Greek Empire and, uh, and, and he took over the area of Jerusalem and he was just kind of a megalomaniac. He, he actively persecuted the Jewish people. He, he basically took over the temple and he sacrificed a pig to Zeus on the altar of the temple in Jerusalem. So this was just a horrible time in Israel's history. But what it did was rally those faithful, loyal Jewish people of that time period to revolt against uh, uh, against Antiochus and his minions. And, uh, and there was a man by the name of Mattathias Maccabeus who had a handful of sons and one of them uh, is most famous as Judas the Hammer Maccabeus. What a great name. He was a warrior. And these Jews actively engaged in guerrilla warfare and were able to take back Jerusalem, take back the temple, and finally, on December 25th, 165 BC, they rededicated the temple through this lighting ceremony. And so, uh, every Jewish year on the 25th of Kislev, which is somewhat comparable to our Roman calendar of December, Jewish people celebrate Hanukkah in remembrance of that. And so, the, I think the important thing here is because this was a holiday that celebrated the Jewish people taking off the, the, the yoke of pagan leadership. And the time in which Jesus is teaching here is a time in which there's another pagan government. Roman soldiers line the streets of Jerusalem with all their pagan practices and their dirty eating habits. And so there was this atmosphere in Jerusalem of longing for a political liberator. And many people saw that in Jesus. They hoped. We saw that in chapter 6, right? After Jesus fed the 5,000 men in chapter 6, we saw them basically want to put Jesus on their shoulders and make Him to be the King. I mean, 
What an amazing king that would be. One who could feed the entire population. I mean, you could never siege a city, I mean, you know, because you could never starve them out if, if the king can feed everybody in the city. But as we mentioned last week, even though the shepherd language that Jesus uses here most definitely speaks of him being the promised shepherd king of Israel, his kingdom would be a different kind of kingdom. His kingdom would be a spiritual kingdom where his subjects follow him. It would not be a political, national kingdom like the the Jewish people longed for. Verse 23, It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. So it's winter time, which again makes sense. This 25th of Kislev is comparable to the month of December. These would have been the rainy months in Israel. And Jesus is said to be walking outside in this this kind of porch area of Solomon. There was uh, on, on each of the sides of the temple, there was a kind of pavilion or porch area. It was a large area that you would have had covering, uh, but the one side would have been open. And this was here where Jesus was at, and Jesus is going to interact with the Jewish people. Now, probably... There's the description of it being winter as an explanation of why Jesus and his disciples would have been under covering. But it is also interesting that throughout the book of John, these different kind of chronological indicators or temperature indicators or seasonal indicators often have kinds of spiritual significance. For instance, remember Nicodemus, when did he come to Jesus? At night. And, and this is, a, in a sense, a kind of picture of Nicodemus still being in the dark, coming to Jesus at night. And, and this may be an indicator, here the religious leaders still, their hearts are cold in the winter months, not embracing their Messiah who's in their midst. Verse 24, Then the Jews gathered around him and were saying to them, saying to him, I'm sorry, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So here these Jews come to Jesus. Now, we don't know if these are some of the same Jews that we saw in the previous conversation, the earlier part of the chapter, if these are different. But they come to Jesus and they ask Jesus to tell them plainly whether He is the Christ. Now, If you're familiar with the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you understand that Jesus very rarely ever refers to himself as the Christ. And that's not on accident. In fact, in the Gospel of John, as far as I can tell, the only time, the only person that Jesus ever directly says with those exact words, I am the Christ, it's the woman at the well. A Samaritan woman. Okay, And there's important reason for why Jesus often avoided the term Christ because the term, the word Christ, was filled with so much baggage. It was filled with the baggage of Israel believing that the Christ would be a political freedom fighter. 
And so Jesus would often avoid the term, even though he obviously is the Christ. As we read the New Testament over and over, Jesus, I mean, you would almost think it's Jesus' last name, right? But it's a title. It means the anointed one, the promised anointed king. But often, Jesus, the most common title Jesus uses for himself is son of man. But even in this very context, what does Jesus declare of himself? He says, I am the good shepherd. Which again, if you are a Jewish person who's familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, immediately Jeremiah 23 would come to mind, Ezekiel 34, uh, even the language of God being Israel's shepherd. These were messianic passages that promised the future descendant of David would be a shepherd over Israel. But Jesus, again, would often avoid those terms because his kingdom, avoid the term Christ, because his kingdom was not going to come about through daggers and swords and guns and tanks, but his kingdom would be a spiritual kingdom. There would be one through His Word as people yield their hearts and minds to Jesus as King. And so they say, Jesus, tell us plainly if you are the Christ. Now notice Jesus' response, verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. So Jesus says, I told you. Now, again, I just said, am I contradicting what Jesus said here when when I say that Jesus rarely said that he was the Christ? No. Because Jesus would use all these different other titles that are found throughout the Scripture that point to him being the Christ without using the specific title Christ. For instance, if I spoke of one who is the commander-in-chief, the head of the executive branch of the federal government, Immediately, you would know I'm talking about the President of the United States. Whether I use that title or not, I'm using other descriptions to describe that particular office. Well, Jesus, again, Son of Man, Shepherd, Son of God. These are all different titles that pointed to the Christ. So Jesus says, I did tell you plainly, but even if you don't quite get that, if you don't quite understand that, verse 25, Jesus says, the works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. If you're not going to believe the things that I say, then believe because of the works that I do. Well, what kinds of works did Jesus do? Well, In the Gospel of John, John records seven amazing supernatural miracles that Jesus performs. We saw in chapter 2, he converts water into wine instantaneously. In chapter 5, there's a nobleman's son who's sick and dying, and Jesus speaks the word and he's healed instantaneously. Later on in chapter 5, there's a man who had been an invalid for some 37 years who's lying down by the pool of Bethesda uh, hoping to have uh, some kind of superstitious healing. And Jesus tells him to get up, pick up his mat, and walk. And immediately he's given a new set of legs. In chapter 6, there's a multitude of people, 5,000 men, maybe somewhere upwards of 20,000 people there. And Jesus creates enough bread and fish to feed the entire crowd. 
In the previous chapter here, in chapter 9, is a man who had been blind from birth, never saw sunset, never saw colors, never saw the faces of his parents. And yet Jesus mixes a mud pie and puts it in his eyes and tells him to wash at the pool of Siloam and immediately he's healed. And all of these testify that indeed this was the promised Christ, promised Christ, the prophet Isaiah had prophesied that this would be one who would heal the blind, he would give, uh, give legs to the lame, he would give sight to the blind, that, that when Messiah comes, he would do all these things. And indeed, Jesus did them. Marvelously so. But they still did not believe. Their hearts were hard and dark. And then Jesus is going to tell them why they don't believe. And this is, this is kind of shocking here. In verse 26, Jesus says, But you do not believe... Because you are not of my sheep. Put that in your theological pipe and smoke on it a bit. <laughs> because that is not what we expect Jesus to say, right? I, I, I mean, we would expect Him to say something more akin to what we see in chapter 3. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world but men love the darkness rather than the light. For everyone who loves, loves evil hates the light and will not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. And, and, and so we would think Jesus would say, you don't believe in me because of your dark hearts, because of your wicked hearts. And of course that's true, right? But that's not what he says. In essence, he says, you do not believe merely because you reject me. You do not believe because I reject you. You are not of my sheep. I mean, think about all that we've learned in this chapter so far with Jesus and his relationship to his sheep. He calls his sheep by name. He knows his sheep. He loves his sheep. He protects his sheep. He lays down his life for his sheep. There are some sheep who are not of this fold, but one day they will hear the voice of the shepherd and there will be one flock and one shepherd. And so Jesus is now essentially saying, that's not you. All that, all that good, ushy-gushy stuff that Christians love, that's not you. Wow. They don't believe because they are not part of Christ's sheep. They're, they're not those of whom Jesus had set His compassion on to make them His own. And the rest of this section, Jesus is, is going to give some distinguishing characteristics of the sheep. The, these are the three distinguishing characteristics I want us to take home. 
First of all, Christ's sheep have submissive ears. Notice what he says in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And again, this is the contrast between they don't believe, they're rejecting Him, they're, they're not embracing Him as Messiah, they're not trusting Him, they're not following Him. Jesus says, My sheep, if you were My sheep, you would hear My voice, and I know My sheep. Now, as I mentioned before throughout the series in John chapter 10, sheep... Are not uh, do not have very many endearing characteristics, right? You know, you'll never see two children playing with action figures and saying, you know, uh, you can have you can have the dragon. This time, I want the sheep. You know, no, like nobody wants the sheep, right? The sheep, they're, they're the dumb animal, they're the helpless animal, they're the weak animal. They're the animal get, that gets eaten by all the other animals. They don't have very many good characteristics, but one dominant characteristic of sheep that they are known for is they follow. They hear the voice of their shepherd and they submit. They are very quick to submit. Very quick to lie down their will to the will of an authority. And here, this is what Jesus is saying of His own sheep. His own sheep, they hear His voice. And this is a hearing that, that is, is, is not mere you know, listening with the auditory canal. This is a kind of spiritual listening that is effective to hear the voice of Jesus. This hearing first happens when a person hears the gospel and by the Spirit of God their heart is awakened and they respond with faith. This hearing is wonderfully pictured in the following chapter. When Jesus' friend, his good friend, Lazarus, has been dead, and he tells the, the group of mourners to, to open the tomb, and they say, well, maybe not, because um, it stinks in there. I like the King James, you know. He's been dead three days, and it stinketh in there. <laughs> But they humor Jesus and Jesus calls out his dead sheep by name and says, Lazarus, come forth. And the sheep hears and submits and Lazarus comes out of the tomb. That is a physical picture of the spiritual reality of what Jesus does when He summons one of His sheep to Himself. And it is also the posture of His sheep through and through their lives in following the shepherd. They hear the voice of the shepherd as He speaks through His Word and they submit. They submit. doesn't mean they always submit perfectly. doesn't mean that they don't wander and 
And he brought back into the fold. But the bent of a sheep is to submit to the shepherd, to hear his voice and to follow. The overriding leadership of Christ's sheep is the good shepherd. Now, this is this is revolutionary. You see, friends, we we live in a culture that promotes your autonomous self as the king to submit to. There's an undercurrent in our culture that says, you decide. I decide when I will die on my terms. I decide whether I will be male or female. I decide if I want my baby or not. I decide who or what I will have relations with. And that autonomous, sovereign self mentality can sometimes creep into our thinking in very subtle ways. But you see, Christ's sheep say, not my will, but the will of the shepherd. I submit to a higher authority, the authority of King Jesus. As He speaks to me through His Word, I follow Him. So friend, is that the posture of your heart? Your ears, I should say. Are your ears bent to listen to Jesus as He speaks through His Word? To submit your beliefs to what He has said. To submit your desires to what He would want your desires to be. To submit your aspirations and dreams to what He has revealed in His Word. To submit, dare I say, your sacred happiness to King Jesus. If that's you, if that's the posture of your ears, you're one of Christ's sheep. But if it's not the posture of your ears, then you're not one of His sheep. And you do not believe because you're not of His sheep. And the first step for you is to hear the voice of Christ as He speaks through His Word and to submit to Him. But not only submissive ears, submissive feet. These sheep not only hear, but they follow. Notice, again, He says here in our verse 27, My sheep hear My voice, and they follow Me. There's movement. There's direction. They follow the good shepherd. They follow Jesus. 
What does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, certainly it means it starts with the ears, but it also moves to action and moves into putting into into practice in the direction of your life that which Jesus tells you to as He's revealed it in His Word. This is why James would say that faith without works is a dead faith. It's not real, genuine faith because genuine faith gets put into practice. Genuine faith is active. It follows. may not follow perfectly, but it will follow. This is the characteristic of sheep. There's a story told that during... uh, Palestinian uprising in the late 80s. An Israeli army, uh, part of the Israeli army took over a Palestinian village that wasn't paying their taxes. And uh, so they gathered up all the, the sheep in this village. And there was one woman who was a widow who was desperate. And she appealed to the Israeli soldier who was watching over these confiscated sheep and she said, Sir, this is, this is my livelihood. My husband has passed away. This is the only way I can feed myself. I, I have a hundred sheep that you guys took from me. Can I get them back? Israeli soldier had a smirk on his face. As there was hundreds and hundreds of sheep all rounded up, he said, well, if you know which ones are yours, you can have them. And so her son pulled out this little flute and began playing this flute. And sure enough, one sheep after another, all 100 of them came out and were claimed by that woman. They heard the sound of the flute and they followed their shepherd. This is a characteristic of Christ's sheep. And so, friend, the person who says, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't follow Jesus, is a contradiction in terms. Well, I'm a Christian, but I just don't like what Jesus says about this over here. It's not possible. Christ's sheep follow Him. They submit their ears and their feet to Him. But not only do they submit their ears, have submissive ears, submissive feet, they're also held in safe hands. This is the last characteristic that we'll spend the rest of our time on here this morning. This is a glorious three verses here that probably only compete with Romans 8 to highlight the safe security in which the believer finds himself. Verse 28, 
and I give eternal life to them. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. What an amazing sentence that Jesus gives us here that is just pregnant with tremendous truth. In fact, looking at this passage, you can see seven threads of the rope that secure the sheep within the grip of Christ. The first of these is is the performance of Christ. Jesus says, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them. Now, now we mentioned this in previous studies that this idea of Christ knowing His sheep is one in which speaks of His love towards His sheep. His knowledge of His sheep is this relational knowledge. And so when we kind of step back and think, if one of Christ's sheep were to be lost, then that would either mean He did not care about them enough, or He lacked the ability to make sure that they were safe. Neither of which could possibly be true. That if any one of Christ's sheep are lost, it is a blemish upon the character of Christ Himself. How many times have you lost your keys? Ever leave one of your children behind on accident? How about on purpose? (laughs) Jesus doesn't make mistakes like that. In fact, He tells us explicitly in John 6, 38 and 39, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I lose none of all that He has given me, but raise them up on the last day. If any of Christ's sheep aren't raised up on the last day, it is a blight upon the performance of Christ to finish the task. But not only that, Jesus promises a permanent life here. Notice what Jesus says here in verse 28. He says, And I give eternal life to them. Now this is one of those phrases that I think we see so often that we just kind of gloss over. Eternal life, by its very definition, is how long? It's eternal. In other words, if Jesus meant to say you have temporary life, He could have said that. You have temporary life as long as you continue to do what I say, then you can hold on to it. Or you have probationary life. You're on probation. (laughs) Next 30 years, you're on probation. If you do good, you make it. But He doesn't say that. The Scriptures never say that. Jesus says, I give them eternal life. 
which means forever, ever life. So if it's eternal, it has to be permanent. Not only that, it is a present from Christ. It's a gift from Christ. Notice what he says here in verse 28. I give eternal life to them. It is eternal life that is given as a gift of grace. So get this. If you did not do anything to earn it, then guess what? You don't do anything to keep it. It's not based upon your performance. Now, I understand you may be thinking, well, aren't we supposed to persevere to the end? Aren't we supposed to continue? Yes, yes, you must. But even that perseverance is a gift of Christ's grace that He guarantees because He keeps His own. Arthur W. Pink says eternal life is neither earned as a wage, merited as a prize, nor won as a crown. It is a free gift sovereignly bestowed. But there's more. It's not only based upon the performance of Christ, it's a permanent life, it's a present from Christ, it's promised by Christ. Notice what Christ says here in verse 28. And they will never perish. They will never perish. It's actually a a double negative in the original language. There's no stronger way for Jesus to make this declaration when He says here, they will never perish. They will absolutely, most certainly, not ever, ever perish. And the idea of perishing in the Scriptures is the idea of going to hell. Is the idea of being eternally ruined. I mean, Jesus could have just said the positive, they, I give them eternal life, but He makes sure that it's, it's clear in the minds of His listener that His sheep, they will never perish. It's not like they'll be there for, you know, 500 years and then Jesus says, well, it's been a long time in heaven here. Your time's up. And then He, as a button, drops the floor out. Time to go to hell. No. Christ's sheep never perish. It's like that great hymn, Amazing Grace. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. It keeps going on and on and on, world without end. What an amazing promise. And again, if it's promised by Christ, then it's the very integrity of Jesus that is on the line. If Jesus reneges on this promise, 
then he's not true to his character. He is not the truth that he claimed to be when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He would be, dare I say, a liar. But he's not. He's the good shepherd. But not only the promise of Christ, the power of Christ. That's what he says here in verse 28. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will snatch them out of my hand. No universal negative, no one will snatch them. Now this, this language of snatching, it's kind of a, a violent kind of snatching. It, it was used previous uh, in this chapter of, of the, uh, the, the thieves and robbers snatching the sheep. Uh, it, it, it's the idea of grabbing, kidnapping, stealing. Jesus says that won't happen. <clears throat> they can't be snatched. They cannot be violently grabbed, kidnapped out of my hands. Now, it doesn't mean that there may not be attempts at that. In fact, Jesus Himself tells us that Satan had asked permission to sift Peter like we. But Jesus says, remember what? I prayed for you, Peter, that your faith would not fail. Yeah, I'm going to let him slap you around a little bit, Peter. But I'm not going to let him kidnap you. And when you return, you strengthen the brothers. Satan is indeed a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But those who are Christ's sheep cannot be consumed because the almighty, powerful Christ who put his foot upon the throat of the serpent at the cross he is stronger than the devil. He will not let it happen. This one who in this next chapter would demonstrate his authority over death as he summoned Lazarus from the grave. This one who in the same chapter says, no man takes my life away from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. And he proved it by rising from the dead. This mighty Jesus who shows his authority over death will not let it happen. Even the greatest enemy itself, death itself, will not be an obstacle between Christ and His sheep. We sing it. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from His hand. Here in the power of Christ I stand. His hands are strong. His hands will keep His own. I mean, any one of these would be enough to keep us secure. But here Christ gives us seven. But not only the power of Christ, the power of His Father. Here, He says in verse 29, My Father 
is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. So it's almost like Christ's hand is on the bottom, the Father's is on the top. You have the hands of omnipotent keeping the sheep. But notice Jesus could have just said, My Father, but notice He adds this, My Father who is greater than all. He's greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. Again, Pink says, It has well been said that if one soul who trusted in Christ should be missing in heaven, there would be one vacant seat there, one crown unused, one harp unstrung, and this would grieve all of heaven and proclaim a disappointed God. But such a thing is utterly impossible. One more. Not only the power of the Father, but also the partnership of the Trinity. Notice the language that Jesus uses here in verse 29. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. So we have Jesus' hands, we have the Father's hands, and then we have this language here, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And then in verse 30, I and the Father are one. Does that phrase sound familiar? My Father who has given them to me? It should. John 7.37 All that the Father gives me will come to me. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of Him who sent me. This is the will of Him who sent me, that all that the Father has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. John chapter 17, this intra-Trinitarian prayer, Jesus says, I pray on their behalf. I do not pray on behalf of the world, but those whom you have given me, for they are yours. These given ones. J.C. Ryle says that believers were given to Christ before the foundation of the world. And so we have this people whom the Father gives to the Son and trusts to the Son to lay down His life for that people. And the Holy Spirit comes in space and time and raises that people from the dead. We have here this partnership within the Godhead of working for the salvation of the sheep to guarantee that they make it home to glory. Do you feel secure this morning? (laughs) If you don't, then... It's not because Jesus' words aren't clear. If you are one of Christ's sheep, you are secure. Now I understand that this sometimes gets messy as we live in a fallen world and, and we can sometimes struggle with assurance of salvation because sometimes you know, we, we don't live like we should. But I can tell you on the authority of God's holy word, If you are one of Christ's sheep, you are secure. And again, the the objection is, well, well that, you know, Matt, you 
you, you, you preach like this and people will just do whatever they want. Live like the devil and say, I'm secure. It's not a new objection. Charles Spurgeon dealt with this objection. He said, imagine if I went to your house and talked to your children and said, young people, if you don't obey your father, he's going to cut your head off and he's going to throw you out of his family. And that's the standard. And if you don't like it, you can lump it. What do you think is going to be the attitude and posture of those children who live daily under the threat of decapitation? Do you think that's going to be a healthy environment for them to grow and flourish in? Now imagine the same scenario. Children, your father loves you. Your father provides for you. Your father would be willing to lay down his life for you. Will you live your life to honor Him? Will you live your life to please Him? The first group of children are likely to slander their father, to have ill thoughts towards their father. But the second group of children, knowing the safety and security of the home and that they're loved by the father and that He's going to be committed to them no matter what, they're going to want to live for Him. Friend, do you want to live for this great God? Do you want to live for this eternity that is more secure, more certain than anything in your life right now? But friend, if you're sitting here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, you are not secure. You are not safe in Jesus' hands nor in the Father's hands. You are in serious peril. You thought 2020 was bad. It's worse. At any moment, your heart can stop. And you will be dead. And if you have not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and have begun the path of following Him, you will be confined to a temporary holding in a place of punishment and torment. And you will await the judgment in which you will be confined to the lake of fire which burns with brimstone forever and ever. And friend, I don't want that for you. So if you're not sure whether you're one of Christ's sheep, make sure quick. Hear His voice as He speaks to you this morning. This is the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. He died on the cross and rose from the dead. And his hands, these same strong hands that keep his sheep forever, they're open to you this morning. If you would but come to him and trust in him alone for your eternal salvation and submit your life to him as the king, he will take you. And you will be counted amongst one of His sheep who hear His voice and follow Him and are safe in His hands. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we thank You that we have a good shepherd. And we 
safe in His hands. We're safe in the Father's hands. Indeed, as we sang earlier, that You will hold us fast. Lord, this is the song of our heart this morning. Lord, this is so important to us because we know our own hearts are, as the hymn writer said, prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. Take our heart and seal it. Seal it to your courts above. We entrust our eternity to the Good Shepherd who guarantees our safety. In whose name we pray.